Right, so uh, Acts chapter 24, um, that's where we're at. We're, guys, we're almost done with the book of Acts. We are, literally have just a few more short chapters left, and then we're done with this book. Then we'll be moving on into the Advent season, and we will take some time, as we've done for the past many, many years, just focusing our attention upon what we call the incarnation. In other words, God coming into our world, and then we'll get to the new year. And uh, before you know it, 2018 will already be upon us, and uh, we have some good stuff that we're going to be going through then. But we want to wrap up the book of Acts. We want to finish this well. Uh, right now, we're on chapter 24. The message title for this morning is A Commitment to non commitment. It's a commitment to non-commitment. And, uh, and that'll make sense as we get into the subject matter. So where we've been at in the book of Acts, so first of all, it's a story of the early church and how it expanded. God's empowerment was upon it through the Holy Spirit. They were going forth into all the world. The book of Acts starts in the, book, in the, in the city of Jerusalem. It ends in the city of Rome. That's very intentional by the writer because his big idea that he's trying to convey is that the good news, the gospel, is not just for a particular ethnocentric group of people, it's for the entire world. And Rome was the center of the entire world. It was literally the empire of, of all empires that the gospel now is then going forth to all the world. So uh, Paul the Apostle is the main character in the book of Acts, and we've been really focusing upon the story of his life. And the reason why I've been doing that is because the author Luke has been narrating the story, we've been following the story along. So what we've been doing is we've just been reading chapter by chapter, verse by verse, making some comments about it. The last few weeks, as well as the next few weeks to come, are just straight narrative. I mean, they're story time. It's one of the reasons why we've been wanting to take some time to just read through the story. And I, I realize for maybe some of you that, that may be um, unusual or, or uh, out of the ordinary, um, because oftentimes what can happen when we come to church as we gather, we might have little snippets of the Bible, we might hear little passages or little verses, but not actually get the storyline. And uh, what we've been really trying to focus on is just the story. Listen to the story. Let the story speak to us. And uh, paying attention to that. Uh, observing some of the details and the data and the information that is coming our way. And so that's what we've been trying to do, is just listen to it. That's why I've been kind of jokingly saying that this is Past few weeks have been like story time with Pastor B. And so I'm going to continue in the theme of story time with Pastor B. We're just going to, I'm going to read through the entire chapter uh, for your own ease. I'm going to break it down as we've done the past few weeks into three or so, four different movements. Today, we'll just take a look at chapter 24 in, four, in three different movements. Uh, the three different movements are three different chapter titles, if you want to think of it that way. Headings um, basically breaks down something like this. And we'll kind of get, I'll, I'll show you some photos in just a moment of where we're at. Uh, but here's the three different movements. Number one, we're going to see Paul is in the status of this public trial that's against Paul. So Paul's being charged uh, because uh, he's been preaching Jesus, planting churches. He comes back to Jerusalem. He gets in trouble. Um, and now he's arrested. He's standing before this guy by the name of Felix. He's a pretty well-known, powerful man. Uh, the Jewish leaders come around Paul, and basically it's a trial. So first thing we see is this public trial against Paul. Second thing we'll take a look at is his personal defense of Paul. Paul speaks on his defense as to what's going on. Thirdly, we'll take a look at this private hearing with Paul. So Paul has this unique, private, behind-the-scenes consultation, if you would, with this highly powerful political guy by the name of Felix. So that's kind of the basic breakdown of what we'll look at. I want to, before we jump in, kind of give a little bit of a, a, a context. 
So next slide, we'll show you some uh, images or pictures. So this is actually really cool because we know that Paul in chapter 24 was in prison. Um, we're, we're described that Paul is actually being held in prison for actually two years, Paul's in prison. Um, but recent excavation, this is pretty amazing. So in Israel, there's a city called Caesarea. This is it. It's called Caesarea Maritima. Um, it's called Maritima because it's on the coastline. It's a Mediterranean Sea. It's absolutely a beautiful area. If you've ever had a chance to go to uh, Israel, you definitely don't want to miss this particular area. It's actually one of my favorite spots. But this little circle right in the center, um, they actually believe, you can't read the little sign right there, but that actually they recently discovered was a prison cell. And uh, they, they truly believe that, that it was either this prison cell or one of the other prison cells around there. Paul the Apostle very likely was actually locked up in there, which is crazy to think. Like, this is a spot. So if you see off in the distance in the upper right-hand corner, um, can next slide, I'll show you the next slide, kind of see where that's at. So see that uh, track right there? So see the circle right there? That's what we just looked at, that slide. That track right there is called a hippodrome. And uh, this is an ancient world version of NASCAR. And uh, they would actually race horses. And so imagine, just imagine, on the seacoast, this massive city. Now it's just nothing but ruins. But at one point, this was a thriving, major, major city. How do we know it was a major city? Well, you don't build horse tracks in the middle of, like, Podunk Town. Like, this is, this is literally, like, people come to this city. Um, next slide, I'll show you this one, and we'll come, come back, maybe. So see off in the upper right-hand corner? That's called, that's an amphitheater. Or I think it's a theater or an amphitheater. I can't even remember. Um, theater? Positive. Are you positive? Not an amphitheater. Who said that? I can't. Okay. What's the difference between an amphitheater and a theater? There we go. Dude, you're so smart. <laughs> anyways, so there we go. That's a theater. That's a theater. So anyways, um, so you'd imagine this is, this is a massive theater overlooking the ocean right there. That circle right there is right where the area is where the, the, the jail would have been. Over to the upper left, you see the big hippodrome. So there's a massive city. Here's Paul right in the center of this ancient city, which is now just ruins, waiting for trial. Now enter in chapter 24. You guys ready? ready? Story time. Pastor B begins now. Let's go. Verse 1 starts off like this. It says, and after five days... Uh, the high priest Ananias came down with some of the elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius, who's kind of this uh, prosecuting attorney, uh, and some of the elders and the spokesman, he says, uh, and then they laid before the governor their case against Paul. The governor in this particular context is a guy by the name of Felix, um, very powerful man. We'll talk more about him in just a moment. So they're laying before him their case. In verse 2 it says, and when he had, had been summoned, that's Paul, uh, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, since though uh, we uh, enjoy much peace, or since through you, I should say, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear from us briefly. So, uh, this is kind of like the opening remarks. So you'd imagine this guy's kind of like the prosecuting attorney. His main aim is to accuse Paul the Apostle or to present a case before this guy, this governor, Felix, so that Paul would somehow, something bad would happen to him. Either he would be disposed or better in their mind, at least, that Paul would be killed. And um, so he starts out his entire, you know, diatribe against Paul with this really nice 
floury, buttery type of, uh, you know, hey, you're amazing, Felix, you're such an incredible leader to all of us, which is funny because if you know anything about the early first century relationship between Rome and the Jewish powerhouses, power brokers, they hated each other. I mean, Rome hated the Jewish people. The Jewish leaders hated Rome. They, did, they basically viewed them with the same type of level of frustration as the Taliban views American occupation. Follow that? That's how they viewed them. So here he's standing before him like, we love you, Felix. You're amazing. You've been so good to our nation. You've done so many amazing things for us. So we want to present to you before you our accusation against this guy, Paul. So that's what he's going to begin to now accuse. Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. And we have found that this man is a plague. So he's going to basically give three or four, depending upon how you view this. I'm just going to kind of see it as three different ways in which you're going to accuse Paul. So number one, he says this man is a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader, number two, of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to profane the temple, which is number three. But we seized him. By examining him uh, yourself, you will be able to find out uh, from him about everything of which we accuse him. So, verse 9 says, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So, again, just to reiterate, there are three main accusations to bring against Paul. Um, really, two of them are false. One of them is sort of true, but just think about them again. Number one, he's a plague. Um, some of your versions might actually say he's a pest. This man is a pest. Anybody have anything different than that? It's a plague. So the word pest or pestilent, um, pestilence is the idea of this guy is literally an infectious disease upon the community, which technically there's no like laws against being a pest in society, but the next charge is a very serious charge, which, which basically what they say is that he is an insurrectionist. The word that's used there, he's a rioter. He, creates riots everywhere where he goes. So we talked a little bit about this last week, that this is a very serious charge. So Rome, the way that Rome worked is when they came into a new area, um, they brought what was called Pax Romana, which is Rome's peace. And so anybody that, um, that accepted Rome and Rome's power and their militaristic uh, might and their occupation, they would have, quote unquote, Rome's peace. But you'd imagine you would have to pay taxes, you would have to, you know, give homage, and in some cases the leaders were not very kind or they would uh, be abusive. So to imagine being under the oppression of this type of militaristic superpower. In some instances, uh, the religious people hated Rome. And so you would have oftentimes sort of this rebuttal, this resistance would oftentimes form. And within these resistance, you would have these people, they were, you know, in modern language, you would call it terrorists. These were terrorists. This is basically the accusation against Paul. Paul is a terrorist. He's going around, and he's creating these terror cells. This is, I mean, do you understand? This is really, really serious of what they're accusing Paul of. Um, the second thing that we see, that he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. True or false? True or false? You guys? True. Yeah, totally true. Yeah, legit. Then the third one, he profaned the temple, meaning he, uh, he, he brought profanity against the temple. And again, this is where Paul is going to address this. So the second thing I'm going to move into, the second line of uh, the, the movement within the text, is Paul's personal defense of himself. We're going to pick that about verse 10. says this. 
And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul then replied. Here's Paul's, what's known as Paul's third defense. Paul gives um, an account of actually what's been going on. So listen, again, just listen to Paul's words. Uh, They're intended for us to just pay attention to them, to think about them, to consider them. So it says this, verse 10. Knowing that for many years, O Felix, you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense before you. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days ago since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and I did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. So what Paul is basically saying is that, look, I've only been here for 12 days. And over this past you know, week and a half, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't had a public Bible study. I haven't sat down and drew in a crowd. I haven't done anything that any of these guys are saying. And if there are any people that were there, they should be the ones that are, that are speaking. And apparently this is an accusation on Paul's behalf saying that nobody that was actually there watching me is actually currently presently here right now to be able to... Uh, Give uh, honest uh, account of what's going on. Verse 13, he says, Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. And this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of my fathers, believing everything laid down in the law that was written by the prophets, having the hope of God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward uh, before God and before men. Now, after several days, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. So what Paul's saying here real quick before I move on, he's basically saying, during the time that I was here, and when I came to the temple, one of the main things I did, my main purpose for even coming in the first place, was to bring money. That was my main job. My main job was to actually just bring relief fund to those people that had needed it. So Paul is just basically saying, I didn't come to create a riot. My, these accusations that are being leveled against me, you know, if, if you want to call me a ringleader of a sect, um, Paul's like, it's not a sect. We, we are actually good Jews. We, we love Yahweh. We love the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In so many words is what he's basically saying. Paul, uh, again, in so many other words, he's basically saying, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good, honest, faithful Jew. And I'm just really simply following the faith of my fathers because I believe that the God who I follow has given promises that resurrection will be what gives us hope. And Paul's just saying, look, I follow that truth all the way to its end. And it has led to Jesus where he's going to end up going with this. And then he says in verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me uh, purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make, their, make an accusation should they have anything against me or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found me. And I stood before the council um, in verse 21. It says, other than this, one thing I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial for you before you this day. So this kind of leads us into the very last part, and we'll wrap this up with basically three observations or takeaways or things in which we want to think about overall that are happening in the text here. Verse 22, now it goes on to say, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, that's the religious leaders, saying, When Lysias, 
the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So this is kind of an interesting thing. So really what's happening here is Felix is a good politician. That's kind of the situation. Felix is a good politician. So again, if you work on the payroll of Rome, your job is to keep peace. So Pax Romana, your job is to keep peace. So uh, let's say Felix does what's just. And in his hearing of this, he's just like, this is ridiculous. This guy, Paul, he's innocent. He's not done anything wrong, or at least anything that's like worthy of like breaking the law. He's definitely not a rioter. He's definitely not a terrorist. He's not an insurrectionist. And yeah, he may have ruffled feathers with regard to the religious leaders over the religious law. But again, we're talking Rome. Rome doesn't give a rip at all about how Jews conduct their religion. He doesn't really care, as long as it doesn't disrupt or interfere with Roman jurisprudence. He doesn't really care about this. So in his mind, he's like, this guy's innocent. But so here's the deal. What happens if Felix releases Paul? What happens? Thoughts? What happens? Possibly get killed? Or what else is going to happen? You guys doing okay? You guys all right? Riots? Yeah, there you go, riots. I think riots might break out. Because these people are really, so what happened when they wanted to put Jesus to death? Were they pretty determined to put Jesus to death? Yeah, are these, is this a pretty determined crowd? Totally determined crowd. What's, their, what's, what's on their mind right now? Blood. They want to see Paul die. They don't really care. They're not compassionate. They're not thinking about justice. All they know is they hate Paul. They want to see Paul dead. And so if Felix does the just thing, the right thing, and releases Paul, either Paul will die, right? But this, now that's a problem too because Paul is a Roman citizen. Remember we learned that information about a week and a half ago or two weeks ago? Paul is actually a Roman citizen. So in other words, Felix has a sworn duty to protect citizens, which that's Paul. So if he releases Paul and Paul is like murdered within the first like, you know, 15 minutes of being released, Felix has got a problem on his hands because one of the citizens he was sworn to protect has now been murdered in the streets, right? Cold blood. But if Paul releases Paul, or if Felix releases Paul, now he's got a problem on his hands because he might have the potential of a revolt of the Jews against him. So he's in kind of a problematic situation. So what does he do? He literally plays politics and he punts and he's just like, all right, let's wait till Lysias comes on down. Right? He, Lysias is the Roman guard that worked with Paul. He's just like, this is a way for him to come down, and then, then I'll render, then I'll render a, a just verdict on this whole situation. So let's just, let's just wait this out. So he's literally trying to ride this out as long as it can go, hoping that the fires that are burning, the passionate fires that are burning in these Jewish leaders' hearts to kill Paul will maybe just wane. So it's like, if we can buy time, maybe this whole problem will just go away. And then obviously it doesn't. So let's keep going. Wrap it up. It says in verse 24, after some days, Felix, uh, this, is, this is an important thing. It says, after some days, Felix then came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So who's Drusilla? So this is kind of an interesting thing. That, now Luke adds, and remember Luke's the, the writer here. And he's, we believe he's, what he's writing is God breathed. God, for whatever reason, wants these details in the story for us to pay attention to. So what's, why? What's the big deal about this? So who's Drusilla? So Drusilla, she was a pretty powerful woman. So she was actually the daughter of a guy by the name of Herod Agrippa I. All right? Herod Agrippa, if you know anything about ancient history, especially in uh, first century Israel, you know that Herod was kind of like this, this 
uh, patriarch, this powerful man, but he was extremely, extremely worried about losing his power and his control. So he's always like mafia. He's always murdering people, right? So if you like Godfather movies, like Herod, someone should do a story about Herod's life. Maybe they already have. But so he was always knocking people off. He was always killing people. So his daughter was this, youngest daughter was this gal by the name of Drusilla. So she had a brother named Herod Agrippa II. He, again, another powerful man. She ends up getting married at age 15 to some powerful leader. So this guy, Felix, gets this opportunity to lead uh, a region for Rome in this region of Caesarea where we're at right now. Um, he brings someone in and basically woos this girl, Drusilla, who's married to another guy, by the way, and she, he basically marries her. So again, this is like total like uh, tabloid version type stuff we hear about today. So Drusilla's knockout, beautiful, drop dead, gorgeous woman. Uh, Felix, I imagine he's kind of like this Harvey Weinstein type character, very powerful. You don't mess with him. Uh, he's the type of guy that you just do what he says. You don't play games with him, otherwise you're dead. And this is the type of situation that's going on here. So not a very good looking guy. Again, history tells us that, but his wife is absolutely beautiful. Here's what's going on here. Power players, all right, power couple, all right? And in the storyline, Paul the Apostle. And Drusilla, she grew up knowing about Judaism. She's part Jew. She's familiar with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These guys no doubt would have been familiar with the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his miracles, uh, his spoken of resurrection. So that's what's happening here. So um, Luke tells us um, Paul is summoned by Herod, or by uh, Felix and his wife, uh, Drusilla. Paul comes in front of them and begins to talk with them. About what? Well, I mean, what do you talk about? Well, what Paul talks about is Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. Like, just listen to the story. So here's what it goes on to say in verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, and he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped for money would be given by Paul. He probably assumed, because Paul had you know, alluded to earlier, he's like, I brought a lot of money to bring relief to these Jewish people. In his mind, he's probably thinking, Paul's rich, like drives around, flies around in a $20 million jet. You know, Maybe that's what Paul's got. Paul doesn't have a lot of money, but Paul is, again, he's, he's a political pawn now in the hands of a very, very powerful leader. And so this is what's happening here. So Felix keeps bringing Paul before him, hoping that maybe he'll give him a bribe and then release him. Again, he's just simply buying time. Verse 26, he says, at the same time, he hoped for money that would be given to him by Paul so that he sent for him often and he conversed with him. And then when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Pontius uh, Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix let Paul stay in prison. So, What's going on here? I'm going to wrap this up with just three observations or three takeaways. That's the story. Hopefully that all makes sense to you guys. You guys doing okay? You guys doing all right? All right, good. Story time, Pastor B. All right, we'll close now with just a few takeaways to think about. Number one, as I think about this, we're told that Paul ends in this little situation for the next two years, waiting, still part of this political system. It's just a political pawn. Um, this, is, this is one of the ideas or takeaways I actually don't have written down, but I'm just going to make a statement out of it. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that, think about this. Um, Paul is literally 
part of this morass, this horrible situation of, of Rome. For two years, he's just simply encumbered by red tape and political maneuvering. He's a pawn, if you would, of the system of Rome. Or is he really? <laughs> right? Or is God actually at work even through this whole circumstance? And that seems to be the storyline that Luke's kind of hinting at. Like, even though Paul, for two years, imagine Paul for two years. What's going on? Now, do you remember we looked at this a couple of weeks ago? Paul receives this word from God. And the message from Jesus to Paul at a really low moment in his life, he's like, Paul, you will go to Rome. I'm with you. You will stand before the power brokers in Rome. That was the word from Jesus. Fast forward now, two years, Paul's literally sitting in a prison, wondering, what's happening, God? Two years, it's going by. You promised me something, hasn't happened, hasn't fulfilled. You guys, you guys ever been in that situation where you, you feel like there's certain things that maybe God's put on your heart or certain passages you've read or th- certain hopes that you had hoped would take place in your life or certain expectations you had and they have not been fulfilled Time keeps ticking, it keeps going by, and you keep looking at it and realizing, I don't have what I thought I was supposed to be getting. That's exactly what's happening to Paul. He's literally part of this political uh, mechanics, and yet, at the end of the day, God's still in the midst of Paul's life. He hasn't forgotten him, in other words. So, again, that's a freebie. You're welcome. I want to take a look at the last three, and we'll wrap this up. Number one, we see that, first of all, that Paul has this deep commitment to Jesus over and above his own personal future, freedom, and comfort. Paul has his deep commitment to Jesus over and above his own personal freedom, future, and comfort. So think about this. When Paul stands before Felix, he's not asking for more pillows. Right? He's not like, you know, the food here is not too great. Can I get some other stuff? He's not like, can I have some more padding for my life? Can I ha-? Paul's not asking for this. Paul literally has a one single focus on his mind. It's Jesus. I mean, think about that. Here's Paul in the midst of a, of a jail, in the midst of a horrible circumstance. And he's probably at the same time wondering, God, where are you in the midst of all this? His focus is Jesus in the midst of that. Now think about this. In your own personal life, again, it's, I think sometimes it's worthy to, to reflect upon how we think about our lives, how we construe and how we create and fabricate and form our, our lives, our futures. Because much of it, I think we have sort of this mentality of entitlement. We deserve certain things. We expect certain things. We hope for certain things. And somewhere along the line, or somewhere within the mix of our lives, Jesus is really nothing more, a little more than an accessory. We put him on when he's convenient. We take him off when he's inconvenient. For Paul, Jesus was the sum total of his life. He's in prison. He's standing before the most powerful people that have the ability to release him. Paul's like, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. That's what I'm here. I'm not here to plead my cause. I'm not, I mean, even though he is obviously defending himself, but his, his main point is like, look, I want, to, I want to promote the name of Jesus. And again, I just go back to this fact that Paul's commitment is to Jesus over and above his own personal future. Now, why? Why? Well, I think Paul first and foremost realized that Jesus... His commitment was to Paul. I mean, Paul later would describe himself as, as, as one who's loved by God. He recognized that God loved him, that God committed himself to Paul. Even when Paul was so far gone and so far away or so far pursuing other 
ideas and thoughts and passions outside of the heart and true heartbeat of God, that God was still pursuing Paul. I think literally that gospel, the good news that God has not forsaken Paul, so ravished Paul's heart that Paul, even in the midst of most horrendous circumstances, was so deeply committed to Christ because he recognized that Christ was so deeply committed to him. Second thing I see is that, again, this is kind of an interesting reality, that Paul is bound, yet totally free, while Felix is free, yet totally bound. Listen to the passage again, verse 16. Um, It says simply this. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and towards man. The, The point that Paul is making is that, look, before God, my conscience is totally clear. Pause and break that down for a moment. Who's God? He's the judge of all things. He's the creator of all things. Do do you realize that breath that you just now took that was complemented with oxygen that works in your blood system that gave you life in that very instant was a gift from God? That God gave that to you. It's because he's good because he loves you. This God that created us, we will stand before him. One day, but the point that I would make is this, is that Paul says, look, I know before the very judge, the very creator, the very one that, that formed and fashioned me, my conscience is totally clear. I have no guilt. There's no baggage. There's nothing that I'm carrying or holding on to or bound by. You might have me in chains, Felix, but I'm totally free. And here's Felix, totally free, but totally bound. Because it says later, he was deeply afraid of what Paul was saying. Why? Because even though he had everything, he was totally not free in his conscience. His conscience was constantly condemning him. He knew. I mean, he, uh, historians, Josephus tells us, I think he was either on his third or fourth wife, right? Drusilla, that was her second husband. But he has gone through, cycled through a handful of women. And again, this guy was just a, was just a dirtbag. And at the end of the day, he realizes before God, I'm not clean. I'm not pure. My conscience has condemned me. Paul's totally bound, but totally free. Felix is totally free, but totally bound. What about you? What about you? Before God, what is your conscience doing to you right now? When you think about standing before God, how, do you, how, how will you plead your cause? What, what type of conscience do you have before God? Is it free? Is it one? Or is it bound? Even though you have everything. You have power, you have good looks, you have money, you have a degree, you have a beautiful family, you have, you know, the the dream life living on the central coast, but what you don't have is a conscience that's free. So the third thing I see, I'm wrapping up with this, is we see that Felix has his commitment to non-commitment, and here's what I mean. In verse 25, we're told that Paul, let me just read this to you. Next slide, I'll read these two final passages out of these particular translations, and we'll wrap this up. So the New Living Translation, I'm going to read out two different translations. The New Living says it this way. Paul reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and the coming day of judgment. So just pause and think about that. So Paul, we're told, that was just, that all this is, is focused upon Jesus, because of passages before this. He says he speaks to them about Jesus Christ, and uh, he begins to elaborate, kind of riff on the reality of like where this takes us. And he describes it has to do with righteousness. What type of right standing do we have? 
self-control. And again, this is kind of a, this has got to be a barb, no doubt, you know, a jab to this guy. Because again, Paul's talking about self-control. And here you got Felix, this guy that has no self-control. All right? He takes anything that he wants. He's an abuser. And finally he finishes with, in the coming day of judgment. And he goes on and says, but Felix became frightened. And he speaks to him. He says, go away for now. He replied, when it is more convenient, I'll call you again. Listen to how the message uh, translates this. It says, Paul continued to insist on right relations with God and his people about a life of moral discipline and the coming judgment. And Felix felt things getting a little bit too close for comfort, and he dismissed him. That's enough for today. I'll call you back when it's more convenient. Now, we're not told how this story concludes with Felix. We don't know. I mean, but here's what's going on. Felix is like, he literally has this unique opportunity to open his heart right in this moment to turn his life over to God, to respond to the grace, the kindness, the offer, the gospel that Paul is sharing with them. Paul responds, he points out to him, look, there is, Felix, a day in which you will stand before God. It will happen. You guys, I, I just want you to pause and just think about this. I mean, it's so easy to think about our daily life and what type of weather we're going to get today and what type of food you're going to be eating in just a few hours and what other types of circumstances we have on the rest of our agenda throughout the day. But have you paused? Have you created a margin of room to think about the fact that one day we will stand before this God? We will have to give an account of our life. Like, we will stand before him. I mean, have you ever just considered that and breathed that in and paused and reflected upon that reality? That's what Paul is basically saying here, is that you, you, you can't dodge this. You can't outflank God. This, this day will come, Felix. You may be judging me, and your judgment may be partial, and your judgment may be, you know, lacking honesty and truth. But one day, Felix, you will stand before this God of all judgment, and you'll have to give an account for your life. And Felix's response is, I'll deal with you, Paul, later when it's more convenient. When is it more convenient? So that's the way we oftentimes operate. We think like this. We think we have tomorrow. We think we have five hours from now. We think in these terms. We really don't understand. We don't know the brevity of, of our lives, the vaporous reality of our lives, that it's not as concrete not as stable as we oftentimes like to think it is. But the reality is, we will one day stand before this God. And so the point that I would make with regard to this is that Paul says to him, look, Felix, this is what's going on. And Felix's response is just like when it's more convenient. So in closing, in conclusion, what I want first is to really take away and consider and think about, how do we respond to God? What type of response do we give to this God? Are we constantly looking for other ways in which it's more convenient for us to respond to him? When will be more convenient? There's one other final thing that's really kind of interesting. Again, Luke doesn't tell us this because he obviously wouldn't even have known this. But Josephus tells us this. Josephus was an early New Testament writer. He tells us that I think it was like, what, 80, 79 or 73 or so, something like that. Mount Vesuvius, does anybody know any like history, historian geeks, like when did Mount Vesuvius erupt? Anybody? Nobody knows that? Some of you guys are Googling right now because that's who you are. But the point of the matter is, this is say, for example, we're actually told, Josephus tells us that Drusilla and her son, a guy by the name of Agrippa, they called him Agrippa too, she's literally in Pompeii 
Vesuvius erupts and Drusilla and her son die. There's no record that they trusted Jesus. Like you just don't know. You don't know. So the issue is, what is God speaking to you? How has he revealed himself to you? How has he shown his grace, his kindness, his goodness? The fact even perhaps of his coming judgment. How does that stir? How does that provoke? How does that shape your thinking of your life? Again, if Jesus is merely just a friend, a pal to be cozied up next to, then we could opt to welcome him or dismiss him based upon whether it's convenient in our lives. But if he is indeed king, I mean, truly king, truly emperor of all created things, then we have to think about how we respond to him. If he truly gave us breath, gave us the opportunity to trust him, how are we responding right now? So we're going to wrap it up. We're going to finish. I'm going to give you guys an opportunity. If you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Or if you're here and you have not, or even maybe you're just playing games with God, and your heart has been waiting, postponing a time to actually get right with him. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. So what I want to do right now is we're going to pray. I'm going to have us all stand. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I'm going to pray over us. And as we sing, as we respond, as we partake of communion, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity, if that's you, to pray with you, to pray for you, to receive Jesus. The rest of us, it's an opportunity for us to worship God. So why don't we all stand right now. We'll partake of communion. We'll sing to God because at the end of the day, when we read scripture, it always calls for some response. Always some response. I think the takeaway response we can have from this is this overwhelming reality that God is a powerful God who calls us to trust him, to look to him, to truly give our lives to him. That no matter how bound we may be by life circumstances, we can actually still be ridiculously free even in the midst of those things. Or vice versa, no matter how free you may appear in life circumstances, free from stress because you've got lots of money, free from problems or worry because you've got great health, but inwardly you're bound. Your conscience is constantly condemning you and you're on this constant treadmill trying to run away from this guilty conscience. But do you know that right now your conscience could be made free, cleansed, washed by trusting Christ who gave his life for you? This is the story of God entering into our world, taking upon himself the form of a servant, taking upon himself the guilt, the shame, the brokenness, our offenses, and dying, allowing unrighteousness and sin and rebellion and brokenness to literally mount upon him to be crushed by it to bear it in his body for us and then Jesus says so that you who bear it on a day to day basis could actually be given freedom be given life